everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm delighted to be speaking once again with Bernard Cornwell about the latest of his more than 50 novels, War of the Wolf. War of the Wolf is the 11th book in Bernard Cornwell's best-selling Saxon tales, renamed the Last Kingdom series since it also became a smash hit on Netflix. This installment opens with the hero, Uther de Bevenberg, in the early 920s. He has passed his 60th birthday, an advanced, although far from impossible, age for that time. And as tends to happen with Uhtred, trouble is brewing. I did not go to Ethelflaed's funeral. She was buried in Gloucester in the same vault as her husband, whom she had hated. Her brother, King Edward of Wessex, was chief mourner, and when the rites were done and Ethelflaed's corpse had been walled up, he stayed in Gloucester. His sister's strange banner of the Holy Goose was lowered over the palace and the dragon of Wessex was hoisted in its place. The message could not have been plainer. Mercia no longer existed. In all the British lands south of Northumbria and east of Wales, there was only one kingdom and one king. Edward sent me a summons, demanding I travel to Gloucester and swear fealty to him for the lands I owned in what had been Mercia, and the summons bore his name, followed by the words Anglerum Saxonum Rex. King of the Angles and the Saxons. I ignored the document. Within a year, a second document reached me, this one signed and sealed in Winchester. By the grace of God, it told me, the lands granted to me by Ethelflaed of Mercia were now forfeited to the bishopric of Hereford, which, the parchment assured me, would employ said lands to the furtherance of God's glory. Meaning Bishop Wolford will have more silver to spend on his whores, I told Edith. Maybe you should have gone to Gloucester, she she suggested. And swear loyalty to Edward, I spat the name. Never. I don't need Wessex, and Wessex doesn't need me. And now, please join me in welcoming Bernard Cornwell. Hi, Bernard. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me again. It's always a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Caroline. Since we last spoke about the previous Uhtred novel, The Flame Bearer, uh, not only has Netflix renewed your Last Kingdom miniseries for a third season, but you've also published a non-Uhtred, non-Saxon novel, Fools and Mortals. Um, that book yeah. is uh, set in the Elizabethan theatre and features Richard Shakespeare and his older brother William during the creation of Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, congratulations on both of these achievements. And meanwhile, I'm talking to you while you're on Cape Cod, where you play repertory theatre every summer. What roles do you have this summer? And is there any interplay between the writing of Fools and Mortals and your acting? Well, I'll, I'll answer the second question first. Yes, there's a huge interplay. Um, I mean, I uh, fell into acting by, by chance, I think, 10 or 11 years ago. And it's a rather interesting little theater uh, on the elbow of Cape Cod. And I think it's the last one of its kind in America. It's called the Monomoy Theater. And every year they, they bring together some 30 or 40 drama students from all across North America. They have to audition to get there. They're, they're usually extraordinarily talented. And some of them are undergraduates, some of them are postgrads. And they put on eight plays in 10 weeks um, to normally a full audience every night. And the directors and the grown-up parts, when I talk about grown-up parts, you can't have a 23-year-old playing Prospero or King Lear. So the grown-up parts and the, and the directors are all equity professionals. And somehow I got raked in 
So about 11 years ago, I began acting. And I've now done, I don't know, some 30 to 40 plays, I guess. Uh, I've played Prospero, Henry IV, Toby Belch. I mean, those are just the Shakespearean parts. This year, I was Jacques in As You Like It and Geronte in Scatino, which is a wonderful farce. I had to get into a sack and be beaten up by a 22-year-old, which was fun. Um, and really, that experience sparked Fools and Mortals because I was, I was learning how to put a play together, how to rehearse it, uh, even a little bit of how to act in it. And uh, I love being in the Shakespeare plays. I think I've been in the Shakespeare play every year since. And I just got more and more interested in what was, what was it like to be part of Shakespeare's company back in 1595. And that was how the book began. So, yes, big connection. It's a wonderful book, I want to say. Uh, I love your Saxon novels, but I have to say, as a 16th century specialist, I had a particularly soft spot for Fools and Mortals. Um, well, as I, as I used to say to people who are going to be desperately disappointed in the book because nobody dies and it has fairies in it, um, almost because it's Midsummer Night's Dream and we have moths and all the others. So, obviously, since we don't want to spoil the plot of previous Utrecht novels, uh, we need to be careful what we discuss with this one, which is number 11. So, let's start with the big story of the series, which is the unification of England from a set of disconnected kingdoms uh, during the reigns of King Alfred the Great and his descendants. Where is England in that process when War of the Wolf opened? Oh, we're getting pretty close towards the end, uh, which is a good thing, because Utrecht is getting horribly old and it's almost as old as I am now. Um, but where we are in that process is, is that, that effectively East Anglia and Mercia have been swallowed up by Wessex. So you might say that three quarters of England is now in existence, although they're still using the old names. Um, you know, with England is still an idea. It actually hasn't happened and it's not going to happen for a few more years. So, you know, we're, we're three quarters of the way there. So the book begins with Ethelflaed, uh, Alfred's daughter, who has had a long-term relationship with Uhtred throughout your series, um, and she's just died. This is not a spoiler because, uh, first, she's a <laughs> historical figure. People can look her up. And secondly, it's mentioned in the very first sentence of the book. So uh, for listeners who may be discovering your Saxon tales only now, could you fill us in a bit about who Ethelflaed was historically? Well, Ethelflaed is one of the forgotten heroines of history. And I mean, there's an awful lot of forgotten heroines. I mean, feminists quite rightly are trying, trying to drag some of them back into the light where they belong. She was King Alfred's um, daughter. And she was married to a man who was called the Lord of Mercia. He, was, um, he ruled Mercia. And when he died, she became known as the Lady of Mercia. She wasn't called a queen. Uh, but she was nevertheless the ruler of Mercia. And in her lifetime, she fought against the Danes. I mean, the background to all this is that is that there were four at the beginning. I'm trying to get this as simple as I can. Let's say in the middle of the ninth century, there are four Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. The Anglo-Saxon kingdoms all speak a very similar language, which is English, uh, which is how the name is, the land is eventually get its name. During that period, there are these huge invasions by people who we loosely call the Vikings, and that's fine. Let's just go on calling them the Vikings because it's easy. 
And the Vikings take over the northern three kingdoms, Northumbria, Mercia, and East Anglia. King Alfred launches a campaign to resist the Vikings. And he's not successful in uniting the country, but it is his dream. And his son Edward and his daughter Ethelflaed extend the boundary of the English-speaking peoples, if you like, way, way, way to the north. So Ethelflaed is a real, a real heroine. Um, I was really pleased that a new statue to her was erected in Tamworth in the Midlands uh, just this last summer. So it's nice to think that she is getting some recognition because she was a considerable warrior and leader and ruler. I suspect part of that is because of your books that people are now. <laughs> I'm not going to claim that. I'm not going to claim that. <laughs> I, I give the poor girl affairs that I'm sure she never had in real life. <laughs> With her children, really, among others. I'm sure that, that, like her father, she was probably an extremely pious Christian. But anyway, that's the historical novel. So although Uchid, as he notes in the first sentence, doesn't attend Ethelflaed's funeral, uh, he does soon leave Edith, his current wife, and travels south uh, to help another member of Alfred's family, Prince Ethelstan. Um, who is Ethelstan? Oh, this is, you know, this, this is all a real viper's nest, so we have to sort this one out. But, but put very simply, Edward, King Edward, Edward of Wessex, who is the son of Alfred the Great, uh, has, well, he's actually got about, I can't remember how many sons he has, maybe four or five. But the eldest is a young man called Athelstan. Um, but his mother, Athelstan's mother, died giving birth to Athelstan. So the next son, who's called Alfred, his father is a very, very powerful nobleman. And lo and behold, a rumor is spread that King Edward didn't marry Athelstan's mother. And, I mean, this really did happen back in the ninth century. And there was undoubtedly a rivalry between Athelstan, who is, again, a considerable figure and an important figure, and Alfred, who seems to have been a complete jerk. Um, so Athelstan is the son of a king. Um, he is sort of in favor with his father, but his father doesn't want him in Wessex, so he sends him north to Mercia. He gives him considerable power there, but he never acknowledges him as his heir. Meanwhile, very powerful forces in Wessex are supporting the second son. So as I say, it's a, you know, it's a nest of vipers. So that's all going to be worked out in the book I'm writing now, so we can't talk about that. All right. Very good. <laughs> so what persuades Uhtred to leave his home um, and go south? Well, mainly because he swore, he swore an oath to defend Athelstan, which is, all takes place in one of the earlier books. And oaths were terribly important to the Anglo-Saxons. I mean, if you made a promise, you were supposed to keep it. And you, you would make that promise on, if you were a Christian, you, you might make it on a relic, some real holy object. Um, an oath should not be lightly undertaken, because once you've made an oath, you have to keep it. And, and Uhtred, because he loved Ethelflaed, and she was Ethelstan's protector, promised her that he would look after Ethelstan. So that's what he does. He goes south to keep an oath, even though he knows that probably he and Ethelstan are going to end up on different sides, eventually. And he's not a big fan of Ethelstan's father, Edward. No, he's not. No, he's not a big fan of his. Um, he thinks that Edward has has become corrupt and too fond of his comfort. But but he's not an enemy of Edward's. 
basically all the neutral ones is to be left alone in Northumbria and and to keep the Saxons way south, but he's continually being dragged back into their battles. And as he notes at one point, uh, when he was a child, that is in the first novel uh, in the series, which is called The Last Kingdom, in those days the last kingdom was Wessex, and now it's Northumbria. Yeah, because, because when the story begins, and I can't even remember which year it began in, um, three of the kingdoms were ruled by the Danes, the Vikings, and only one was ruled by the English. By the time we reached this 11th book, three of the kingdoms are now ruled by the Saxons, the Christians, and only Northumbria is left as a, as a Viking kingdom. Uh, so now Northumbria is the last kingdom. And what does that mean to Uhtred personally? Well, I think, I mean, I think Uhtred, much as I love him, is slightly confused. Um, he was born a Saxon, uh, he was baptized a Christian, and then at a very young age of 10, he was captured by the Vikings, and he was raised by a Dane. Um, he learned to speak Danish, he became a pagan. Uh, in many ways, he prefers the company of the Danes to the company of, of his own Saxons. Uh, but nevertheless, he's, he's continually binding himself by his rather irritating habit of making oaths. Uh, but, but, I mean, he's certainly on the side of Athelstan. He's going to fight for Athelstan. Um, I suspect in the end Athelstan is going to turn on him, but I haven't written that book yet, so I can't be sure. <laughs> well, that's just as well. You wouldn't want to tell us anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know anyway. So. <laughs> so, I don't know why I noticed this particularly in this book, um, but one of the things that's been an interesting theme throughout the series is that you know, at one point, Britain was a colony of Rome. And yes. I, even when I was a child in England, there was a, a Roman road not far uh, from where I went to primary school. I know, I, I, I heard you say that, I, I'm, I'm, and I'm terribly jealous, but go on. But, and you could walk on it, you know, I mean, it was, it, well, by then it must have been 2,000 years old, at least. And yet it it was shut off. I mean, people didn't drive down it or bike down it or anything like that because they were making some minimal effort to preserve it. But I remember, I have this very clear memory of walking down this um, this road. And it was, except for the fact that it didn't have tarmac on the top, it was just as well constructed and pretty much as as traversable as the you know the modern road outside so and you know it's there are all these in Uchis time there's still all these little pieces of Rome you know wall and um, buildings oh, more that, pieces there, there are whole buildings whole towns right and people are sort of gradually tearing them down and taking the stones and stuff like that but Uchid himself has this sort of interesting uh, Approach to the history. Um, what does he take from from the remnants of Rome? Well, he takes what we we know that a lot of Anglo-Saxon poets took. I mean, I steal that entirely from from Anglo-Saxon poetry. And I mean, these are people who built in wood and clay uh, and thatch. And all around them, they see the decaying remnants of an enormous civilization. The roads that the Romans made are still the major roads in Saxon England. Some of the towns are almost intact, um, and yet, over the three or four hundred years since the Romans left, five hundred years, of course they've decayed. The roofs have fallen in, sometimes the marble cladding has fallen off, but they're still there. And they can't make anything like that. So the obvious deduction that they draw is that mankind 
is not progressing forward as we think of progress, but is sliding back into a, a, a new dark age. And one poet calls these ruins the work of giants. Now, of course, they know that it was the Romans who made it, but, but they really have no idea of how it was done, I mean, how it was organized. I mean, they know how to build in stone, but they can't do the same thing. So they're in awe of it. And there is, I think, in, in certainly in Uhtred's case, a kind of regret that this sort of glory that was once all across Britain is vanishing, it's fading, it's decaying, it's falling down. As one of the poets said, the walls are being broken by frost. Uh, and and they're heading into this, into really what is a dark age of chaos. So, although Uhtred wields considerable power in Northumbria, uh, the kingship actually belongs to his son-in-law, Sigtrigger. Yes. Am I saying that correctly? Um, tell us about him. Well, yes, Sigtrigger was in... I mean, this is where... Uh, there's always sort of conflict when you're writing historical novels because history sometimes doesn't give you what you want. Um, and there was a, a Dane called Sigtrigger. Actually, he was, a, he was a Norseman, a Viking called Sigtrigger, who was the king of Northumbria. So I had to deal with him. I mean, how on earth do I make Sigtrigger into Uhtred's ally? Well, the quickest way to do it was to marry him to Uhtred's daughter. That becomes a little bit awkward, as you know, if you've read the new book. But nevertheless, you know, Sigtrigger was the king of Northumbria. Uh, and him, he wasn't the last Viking king, but he's very nearly the last Viking king of Northumbria. And he's an ally of Uhtred's, obviously. As his son. Oh, yeah, he's an ally. Yes, they like each other. After Uhtred travels south to help uh, Athelstan, uh, it soon becomes clear to him, Uhtred, that is, that he's been tricked. Um, and again, this isn't really a spoiler because something would have <laughs> to happen, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so the main part of the story, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is mostly fiction, right? It's it's oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, is set up by this realization because now he's far from Northumbria and he's um, he knows he's been tricked and something's going on and he has to fix it. And specifically, what he figures out is that the western part of what was then Northumbria, in which we now call Cumberland, is still being invaded by the Danes. Yeah, and in all this is true. I mean, in the sense that although the story is fictional, it's based on what was happening. And it's going to get worse, in fact, despite what happens in the book. Uh, the, it's the Norsemen. Um, they're being defeated to a large extent in Ireland. They're also facing defeat at the hands of the king in Scotland. Um, and a lot of them find refuge on the west coast of northern England. Uh, as you say, what's now called Cumberland. And more and more Norsemen are pouring in there, um, setting up their farms, and really it's a very lawless region. Although Northumbria, which is ruled from York on the eastern side, claims overlordship of it, they don't have the troops to go in there and, and keep these guys in order. So trouble is going to be brewing in, in Northumbria, in Cumberland, and, and that, in fact, is going to happen over the next couple of books. Uh, as well, until finally it all comes to a head. Uh, so, you know, it was true. Um, at that time, there were very savage Vikings flooding into northern England, trying to find a refuge. And they really are savage. I mean, they do all kinds of horrible things. Oh, they weren't nice. <laughs> Uhtred would probably enjoy their company, because he's not exactly a, a milk toast. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> 
So um, another name I'm going to struggle with, uh, Skull Grimerson. Yeah, and he's a fictional character. I mean, he stands for these for these Norsemen. Um, in the sort of subtext of the book, there, there are some names of, of real guys uh, who, are, who are going to be important later on, but I didn't want to introduce them too early. So Skull is, if you like, a... He just stands for, for these Norse invaders. And he's a horrible enemy of Utrecht, of course. Right. So is is that why you created him as your antagonist, because he's a representative? Or is there something about well, him personally? Well, he, he, he had to be a, um, a Norseman. He had to be a Viking. Um, and so I don't I mean, almost any name would have done for him, except for the names of the people who I need later on. Hi. Yeah, it's terrible names. You give them to somebody and then and it sticks and then all of a sudden you realize <laughs> that they should really have gone to somebody else. It's <laughs> true, yes. Yeah. So Skull is a wolf warrior, which is where the title comes uh, for the book, War of the Wolf. So what is a wolf warrior? Well, uh, most people call them berserkers. And, and, you know, I mean, people have these ideas about Vikings, and I, I mean, I hate to say this, but a lot of the ideas are totally wrong. I mean, they weren't nearly so stupid as to put horns on their helmets, because if you have a horn on your helmet, it can be knocked off terribly easily. Um, and people have this idea that, you know, the berserker uh, would fight naked and didn't feel pain and was possessed of superhuman strength. And there is some truth in it. Um, and what my research has discovered, I mean, for a long time I was wondering what kind of psychedelic drug they were using, because undoubtedly they were. And it appears to have been an ointment made from a herb called henbane. And it, it is a psychedelic drug. And anybody who smears enough of this on themselves is going to suddenly have an, the illusion that they're flying. Um, and probably is not going to feel nearly as much fear. And people did fear these warriors. Um, I mean, you, this is where we get the word berserk. They went berserk. So if you're actually being attacked by guys who've been driven mad by drugs and are carrying vast battle axes and swords and spears, you have every right to be frightened. But on the whole, through the series, I've tried to avoid the berserkers as much as possible. Um, and then my fans... My readers, let's say, write to me and say, why haven't you got any berserkers in the book? Well, in this book, I introduced them. But Uchid is not that impressed with them, even though most of the others are. Um, no, because he's, I mean, Uchid is an incredibly experienced warrior, and he does understand that discipline and training and craft will, will see you through. Um, I mean, a, a guy who is driven half crazy by a drug is not going to be terribly careful. And that lack of carefulness might well open up an opportunity for you to defeat him, which is what happened. The skull also inspires fear because he travels with a powerful sorcerer. I know, I love sorcerers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I mean, always annoys his Christian friends by calling their priests sorcerers, um, which, which is actually fair enough. And, uh, I mean, simply think of him as, as Skull's religious advisor, but he's also a man who believes in visions, and, and it's also terribly helpful if your enemies believe that you have a great sorcerer who can, can perform magic and put fear into them. But there were sorcerers, I mean, and, and quite what powers they had, we don't know. Um, but they certainly had the power to put fear into other people. 
Yes, even Uchid feels himself cursed at one point. Yes, he knows. I think, you know, this is, I don't know what this is. I mean, in, in modern terms, um, that everything seems to be going wrong. And he decides that the only explanation for that is that he has a curse put on him. And, and that's totally rational. I mean, nowadays we have scientific explanations, we have technical explanations, we understand so much better how the world works. I mean, if a river floods and destroys the harvest, we know it's because of global warming or whatever. We know that, that you know, the death of, of someone, we know what the cause is. But for somebody in the ninth, tenth century, there is no obvious cause for a failed harvest for a plague. So they have to believe there's really no option it is the work of the gods, and from there it follows, I think, fairly logically, that some people have the power to talk to the gods, or to persuade the gods, or to influence the gods, and those are your sorcerers, or if you're a Christian, those are your priests. Well, that is? Sure. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that um, also, I mean, it's a running theme in the novels, this sort of push-pull between paganism and Christianity, which is kind of represented by Uchid. Oh, absolutely. He's completely, he's completely, I mean, riven by it. I mean, in the, uh, originally, I, I always like, I mean, if you're writing about a famous character, and probably the most famous character I write about is Alfred the Great. And Alfred was famously pious. I mean, he's, a, he's an incredibly good man. He's very intelligent. He's one of the best monarchs ever to have ruled in Britain. Uh, but it's not going to help me if Uhtred and he are best buddies. Uh, I like to have a little bit of tension between them. So the obvious tension was to make Uhtred into a pagan that really, really annoys Alfred enormously. Uh, but nevertheless, he knows that he needs Uhtred, and Uhtred comes to realize, in a sense, he needs Alfred as well. So I think, you know, that's where it began. It began as a, as a device to actually put a distance between Alfred, who is one hero, and Uhtred, who is the main hero. It also has this, I mean, it imparts something to the novels, not just because of Uhtred's confusion, as you call it, but... Also, because paganism, Norse paganism in particular, is really much better suited to this warrior society than Christianity. It is, isn't it? I know, yeah. Um, I mean, it's like, you know, the Roman religion of Mithraism, which was very much a warrior's religion. And because the great problem with a warrior's religion is it doesn't leave any place for the ladies. That's true. <laughs> I mean, and, 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 and women, God bless them, are, are probably the chief... Uh, conduits for culture because they tell their children stories, they teach their children. Um, so if a woman is not attracted to a religion, that religion already is, is probably doomed. I mean, men loved it. Mm -hmm. I mean, after all, if you were a, a good warrior and you believed in, in Valhalla and Odin and Thor, then your eternity was to be spent in a mead hall, being served by women, eating wonderful meals, drinking lots of ale, and every now and then going out and having a jolly terrific battle. And if you got killed, it didn't matter because you immediately came back to life. For the women, it was washing up in the kitchen. No wonder it religion first. <laughs> yes, you can see the appeal of early Christianity. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. I mean, Christianity embraced everyone, mm -hmm. from slave to, to, to emperor. Um, Everybody had a, had a place, and you also, of course, offered the, the great lure of eternal life. So, you know, I mean, Christianity had a lot more selling points than, than the Viking paganism. Well, especially in the very early period where women could still preach. I mean, they got rid of that yeah. early on. But... 
this is another discussion altogether, Karen. You're quite right. <laughs> and indeed, I mean, the thing that amazes me is that in Uhtred's time, ninth, um, tenth centuries, uh, just about every priest was married. The bishops were married. The archbishop was married. Um, this was totally normal. I mean, this this absurd requirement for celibacy came in later. I'm not sure. I think in the eleventh. Yeah, it's about the twelfth century. I think about the time of Eloisa Nabalar, because that's still. That's right. I mean, that's why they broke them up was because they were now starting to get serious. But only in the Western Church, in the Eastern Church, priests must be married. Yes, I mean, which, you know, I don't think it makes more sense. It does make sense, though. So what's next for the Saxon Tales? You say you're writing... Well, well, next is that we... we, uh, And again, I don't think this is a spoiler because the book is a year away. And I'm still only on chapter one. (laughs) But, I mean, Edward dies. I mean, that that, that death is foreseen in the the 11th book in, in War of the Wolf. Uh, and when he dies, the rivalry between the two elder sons comes to a head. Um, and so, essentially, like the book I'm writing now, will be about how that uh, how that rivalry is settled, which it was in 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 real history. Um, unfortunately for me, there's a, a wonderful mystery about it, and I love that because when there's a mystery, we don't have an explanation for something that happened. Then. I can make it up where a real historian can't. Yes, yes, that is the big advantage. Um, and even without the mystery, you get to pick because historians never agree on you know, explanations for anything. So you, you can always find out what the different variations are and pick the one That's you true. like best. But actually, no, they have actually no idea about this one. So, oh, excellent. You know, I'm, uh, yeah, it's absolutely, it's, it's completely open area for me to do my worst. Well, we'll look forward to finding out what that is. (laughs) (laughs) So do I, by the way. (laughs) Yes, I know. I remember you mentioned that to me, that you don't know what your story is until... I don't. I really don't. I mean, because I always think that a story, I mean, the joy of reading a story is to find out what happens. But for me, the joy of writing it is to find out what happens. I mean, I know roughly what happens, but I don't know how it happens or what what Utrecht will do to make it happen. But I'll discover that as I write. Yeah, actually, for me, it's the same thing. I mean, I used to try, uh, I tried it for one book. I tried outlining and I got five pages in and the story was already heading somewhere else. And so (laughs) I know, it's lovely. I love it when the stories do that. (laughs) Yes. So I gave up. Now I just make this, yeah, I make a short list of things that have to happen. So when I got lost, I can say, well, that's where I've got to get back to. You know? <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing your time with us. It was a great well, pleasure again. And Karen, thank you for your time too. It's an equal pleasure here. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, and today I've been talking with Bernard Cornwell about War of the Wolf. Find out more about him at www.bernardcornwell.net. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histwick. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network. <laughs>